Hi, and welcome to the Unhinged History Podcast, the podcast where your hosts spend the entire week binging whatever history thing that they have thought of and thought the other one might find as enjoyable as they do. And then we try to surprise each other. So I am host number one. I'm Teresa. I am host number two, and I am Angie. Surprise! Ha-ha. It's ah, still still us. <laughs> you didn't think it was us this week, did you? <laughs> mm-hmm. My new goal is to make her laugh while she's doing the intro because she likes to mess with me. So if I can get her to stumble through something, I'm winning. You know, I don't know if mess with you is my goal. My goal is, gosh, what the heck can did I say last time? So I'm just going to come up with something and it's never the same. And because it's so off kilter, I think that's what gets you. <laughs> you know what? I think you're, you're probably right. I it's think off kilter. Yeah. Even in my birthday cards, you mentioned something about just the, the, the metaphors I come up with that throw oh. you. Because listen, your metaphors are like, I was going to say hilarious poetry, but that doesn't even give it like half of its due. Like your metaphors are a thing of beauty. <laughs> like, and I never know when I'm going to get one. So I'm always like, wait, what you going to say today? To be fair, <laughs> I never know when I'm going to get one. Oh, that's what makes it fun. It's a surprise for all of us. Right. I mean, <laughs> there are times I will say something and I'll go, oh, that's how I'm feeling. All hmm. right. All right. Well, now we know. Moving on. Um, yeah. I guess I'm going to go with this today. <laughs> and that that's like the weird part of being an introverted external processor. Like, I don't want to talk to people, but to know what's going on in my own head, I have to speak to others. And so that's a weird dichotomy. I'm just thankful for the husband because he gets it. He's like, yep, work it out. Mm-hmm. I'm right here. He doesn't even have to say anything. He just sits there. Hubs will look at me because you know I'm gearing up for knee surgery and he'll just be like you're in pain I huh I I know I'm yeah well I hmm I am I'm gonna go get you some some Tylenol yep oh the amount of times Ian's been like listen this is what you're really mad about or this is what you're really thinking about like just come on now get it out and then you know as soon as he says whatever fill in the blank you know I'm like dang it you're right I've been trying to work that out all day that's not that's not fair right like I don't appreciate that like I think and that's probably the difference between a therapist and a spouse right the therapist has to spend up to six to eight months to allow you to slowly walk to that conclusion yourself and then they pretend like like, it's a surprise yeah well like they're like (laughs) you've made a great breakthrough our spouses, you know, look at their watches like, okay, I'm going to shortcut this because I have got a list of things that you want me to do. And the only way this is going to happen is if I stop this right now and we cut right to the chase. Yep. And go. Although, okay, to be fair, I, I've stopped this habit, but there was a series of time where I would be talking with hubs and I would just look at him and be like, okay, fast forward, just, just fast forward. Like I like, let's do this. Right. Like I, you know, this exposition is fantastic or was five minutes ago, but I'm I'm done with it. I already know the conclusion. Like, let's, let's just get there. Can we move on? <laughs> yeah, and oof, oof, that nothing, nothing shortcuts that conversation directly to a fight like that. Oh, I am 
quite certain you're right about that. Yeah. yeah. No, um, we we just take the, you know, the hard exit on off the freeway onto Fight Town and Yep. My favorite thing that Ian says is like 30 minutes into whatever we're talking about and he knows I've lost interest at least 20 minutes ago. He'll stop <laughs> and look at me and go, "Are did you how long ago did you stop listening?" Oh, like days ago. Is that why you're agreeing? Because like you're actually done. Like it's not that you think I'm right. It's that you're quite finished with this conversation. Yes. Okay, great. <laughs> Smart and, man. And then he just moves on and I'm like, thanks for that because we're talking about it anymore. Like I, I tuned out a long time ago. I don't know if he maybe just sees my, like my eyes glaze over or that I've like, you know, rubbed my eye 52 times, mm. <laughs> whatever, whatever there, social cues I can be giving. <laughs> there was a friend who had the best way, I best, it was infuriating, but he, you'd be talking with them and he'd look at you and he'd go, you're losing me, you're losing me, wall. <laughs> and yeah. as he would, I mean, it was just like when he turned his head and said wall and like looked away from you as he said it, it was just like. You wanted to backhand him at that moment, but later on, I mean, I would just bust up laughing because what are you gonna do? I mean, yeah. you explain that to somebody and they're just like, he he did what? <laughs> no, he's just calling it, man. I know I'm about to I'm about to lose it. And it's gone. <laughs> yeah, you know? I don't know. I can appreciate that friend. So we didn't Rochambeau before this to see who would go first. You do want to Rochambeau now? I I don't know why that answer takes so long for me to come up with one because I'm like, do I want to? Like, do I want to just be like, I, I, I guess I was expecting you to just make the decision. Be like, I'll go or no, 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 by all means. You go on. Right? Like, I mean, like, here's the thing. I'm cool either way. So, I mean, if you want me to make the decision, I'll make the decision and be like, madam, the floor is yours. Like, I want to hear your story. You've got me. Uh, you told me that I most certainly have never heard the story. And at first I was like, how dare you? And then I was like, okay, bring it. Maybe I haven't. <laughs> I, I like how it was just like, <laughs> what? I can't believe this. I'm indignant. Yeah, outraged. <laughs> and then went, oh, that would be cool. I like this. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, I guess I will go. So I, I did tell you to remind me, and because I said, hey, remind me, that means I suddenly remembered. Um, That's how it works. Right. Mm -hmm. That there is a slight trigger warning. I mean, I'm going to say that like, so there are, there is an element to this case that could, could deal with sexual assault. And with that said, um, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it. I mean, I could just gloss completely over it as I tell the story. So, but I do want to surface that because- that is something that could pop up. So if that is something that bothers you, it's going to be done like not very in-depth, like, but I just, I want to surface that, all of that to say. Um, okay. So I'm going to tell you about the woman who was dubbed Mrs. Sherlock Holmes. I love this. I don't know this story. Okay. So my sources, um, Grace Quackenbush, also known as Grace Humiston or nope. Quack and Bow. Quack and Bows. Okay. Sorry. It's not real. <laughs> no, but, okay. But, so this woman, this woman, Grace, she has she has a couple names because she marries a couple times. Um, 
she has quite a few articles in the New York Times that were written about her during her time, like 1917, around that. Um, There's also a book called Mrs. Sherlock Holmes by Brad Rika. And Brad Rika, I actually heard an interview of him on the Wicked Words podcast. And that's kind of what started my whole like, oh. And so I went and got the book. Um, There's also an article from the Three Village Historical Society, Mary Grace Quackenbow Hummiston, Mrs. Sherlock Holmes by Tara May. There's an article on the Smithsonian Magazine, Mrs. Sherlock Holmes takes on the NYPD when an 18-year-old girl went missing. The police let the case grow cold, but Grace Hummiston, a soft-spoken private investigator, wouldn't let it lie by Karen Abbott. It's a long title. Hi. I'm so excited. Okay. So... The story's going to bounce around a tiny bit at first, and then it's going to kind of go into a flow. And there's probably going to be moments where I just riff on it. So okay. that's what happens when you do a ton of research. You're like, okay, but wait, hold on. There's more. Oh, dude. Dude. <laughs> okay. So I'm probably going to bounce back and forth between calling her Mary Grace Quackenbos Humiston, which is her full name, or Grace Quackenbos, or Grace, or Grace Humiston. And that's just, that's just going to happen because so many things were written about her and each one was written at a different point in time. And so there's different variations of her name. And so sometimes right. they'll, they'll do the full, like, this is the full thing. And it's hummus or crack and bush crack and bows. Hummiston is going to be something I'm going to trip on the entire time. So I'm going to try to avoid as much tripping as possible. I agree because that's quite a handle. Uh-huh. She was the first female assistant United States attorney. She was appointed to her position before women were legally allowed to vote in the country. And Good as honor. a right? Like, I love that. And she weighs in on women's suffrage and the right to vote in very interesting ways. Like she's friends with very famous suffragettes who are leading the cause, but she herself makes the statements like, I I don't have time to concern myself with the politics and voting and things like that. Mm-hmm. Like Good for you, but not my thing, man. Yeah, it's like, you know, I I'm not going to speak to this. I'm I'm too busy. I'm just like, wow, okay. It's kind of kind of interesting. And she ends up becoming so she starts her career as an attorney and later becomes a highly sought investigator earning the nickname Mrs. Sherlock Holmes. Okay. She's born September 17th, 1869 in New York and her father's a well-to-do merchant. He ends up becoming a very prominent a layman in the Baptist church. She's the great niece of Admiral Hall. And her grandfather is Henry S. Hall, who was the partner to William Lloyd Garrison of, you know, anti-slavery fame. Okay. So okay. she's got quite a bit of wealth. She is at that point, one of three kids. Um, She ends up inheriting her family's estate when her brother is institutionalized. And she refers to him like when people ask about her brother, she says that he's died. Like, so it's the time where you don't acknowledge mental health in the family to the point where they are disinherited and all that kind of stuff, which is, which is a very big bummer, but it it kind of shows and depicts a lot of that nuance and complexity of the time. Yes. And so, and is equally sad. It is, it is, you know, and that's kind of one of the things that make her a complex character. Her, she herself is, she doesn't talk a lot about herself and spends more time talking about her work. And so when you hear a nugget about who she is or her actual life, you go, I'm, I'm sorry, what? 
<laughs> Say that again one time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in 1888, she graduates from Hunter College in New York, and this is when she inherits quite a bit of money. And in 1907, there's a New York Times article that says that she heads to law school so she could learn to better manage her estate. Okay, get it, girl. Right. Like, I personally probably wouldn't enroll myself in a three-year program. I would highly likely just seek out some legal advice, pay a couple hundred bucks, call it a day. So it seems like it's a very interesting way that her mind processes things. And what's interesting is she chooses to go to a, a school that will allow women in law school, but because of policies in place, she can only attend the school at night with, quote, less desirable students, women and immigrants. and Right. And the class is taught, you know, she's in she's in class in one in winter and all of the women in the class were seated underneath the skylight. And as a prank, some of the male students opened the window and it doused them in snow and rain. Oh, how nice of them. Right. And so now the women are fo- forced to sit there freezing, trying to learn. It's after this that Grace Quackenbows sits in the front row. Good on. Yeah, she's like, I'm I'm done. She impresses the dean of the school who's teaching that class, Dean Ashley, and he urges Quackenbows to take to stop taking evening classes, to start taking day classes as well. So she ends up graduating in only two years. She ranks seventh in her class and receives her Bachelor of Law in 1903. Good for her. Yep. I love that. It's at this point she starts working for the Legal Aid Society for a year, and then she's accepted into the bar. And then in 1905, she founds the People's Law Firm. Okay. And it is she is just off from there because she is primarily focused on working immigrants' cases and the working poor. And within two years, she's opened a pair of offices. She's working on Broadway mm-hmm. and on Madison Avenue, and her reputation's growing. And her reputation precedes her. Oh my gosh, does it? There's one case that really kind of sets her apart, and it is in defense of this woman, Mrs. Antoinette Tola, an Italian woman in New Jersey who draws media attention. And what is fascinating is that there were a group of women from Wesley College that hear about this case. And they hear about this woman on death row and they surface her case to Quack and Bose. And they're like, you need to, you need to handle this because this is nuts. Um, Tola had been convicted of murder of a man named Joseph Santa. And he and was scheduled to be hang when Quack and Bose took the request of the Italian consul general who offered her a substantial fee. So he, he offers all this money and she works pro bono. And as she did for many years, noting that she would prefer to take a case oh, right, because she she is already has the inheritance so she technically right. isn't really she doesn't need okay yeah i don't know why that was i needed to say that i just had to work that out <laughs> okay but like one of the like she would she she would work cases basically for what people could pay and if you were poor she they would they would say like i'll, I'll bake bread for you great break, break bread for me or bake a bread for me you know what i'm gonna i, I, I sew clothes i'm gonna sew clothes for you great fantastic make them all black because she wore all black because it's she gets married Mm. and as she like right after she gets married her dad dies and then her mom dies and then this is a sidebar then there is 
insinuation that her husband, who was a doctor, had peepholes that he was looking at patients in his practice with, they get a divorce. Now, again, this is all sidebar, right? Like she's very tight-lipped about this. So she just dresses, starts dressing in all black, and that's just her thing. Like the morning veils, the whole nine. I'm that's I'm here for it. She yeah. is a, a, the OG goth babe. Oh my gosh! So just <laughs> keep that in mind. Like as she becomes this big, you know, so big for you know, whatever. But her quote is: "She would prefer to take the case without Renumera as woman for woman." Get it? I love right? that. Like she just she is here to help, and she's just not not going to deal. And it helps being independently wealthy. Absolutely. So by the time she takes up this case, her firm had 550 pending cases, and she'd already employed four attorneys and two stenographers. Good on her. Yeah. And she's like fresh out of school, you know, like, so this is just nuts that she's already garnering so much attention. Her team works quickly and well. And for seven days after officially taking the case, Quackenbos convinces the Board of Pardons of New Jersey to commute Tola's death sentence to a prison term of seven and a half years. She successfully argued that Tola had killed Santa in self-defense and in that previous testimony had not been properly translated. So they didn't have court, well, they had court translators, but they weren't to the level that we have today. It's just like, do you, can you speak Italian? I, yeah. Yeah. My, my great uncle was Italian. Yeah. Good, Good enough. Come on in here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And so as a result, like there's some things that just don't translate well. And so then this woman, like, <laughs> like the judge at one point in the testimony made a statement, like that got her convicted before Humiston was brought in that um, no, because they had said that Santa, the, the murder victim was um, armed and she was defending herself. And the, the comment was his gun had never been found. Not that he was unarmed, there was no gun. It was like, what do you mean it's never been found? That's a weird statement. Let's let's dig into it. Let's double tap on that. Well, yeah, because it implies that you know that there for sure was a gun. We just haven't found it yet. Yeah. And sure yeah. enough, they find, like, she goes to the medical examiner and she says, hey, I'm, I'm going to need to know what were all the belongings that are with him. And one of the things was a gun. Hmm. Now, Tola's testimony makes sense. It was self-defense. Because the original conviction said that she had fired the shot from the back of the head. And when the medical examiner looks at it, it's like, no, no, from the face. Like she was defending herself. And when, so Santa had been trying to make all of these advances on her and say that he was going to do all of these things. And she tells her husband and her husband confronts Santa and Santa's like, look, I'm wealthy. I'm the one who paid to bring you here. Like if I decide your wife is valuable and desirable that's what it is and so this Ugh. guy kind of walks away this tail type point is like so she goes to santa's wife and santa's wife's like get a gun scare him <laughs> and so she's like what my husband's not doing anything because santa will you know accost her in front of her husband the wife's like what do you want me to do and yeah, so like, she's like, I want me to handle this. <laughs> like, what What am I going to do? So she gets a gun and she goes to like frighten him. And he makes the comment like, I've got one too. What do you like? I'm okay. And he's drunk. And okay. So anyhow, he accosts her. She shoots him. She runs out of the house screaming. Then she's convicted. Um, 
All of that. In that order. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So with all of that in mind, Quackenbose argues successfully that Tall had killed in self-defense and that her previous testimony hadn't been properly translated. And it was March 9th, and Tola had been scheduled to be hanged on March 12th. Oh. Like, just right at the, the 11th hour. And she's uninterested in notoriety. Quackenbose did not rest on her laurels, but continues to build her practice, despite having 550 pending cases. Like, she just keeps getting bigger and better. She strove to assist anyone who needed her expertise, stating in an interview that Quote, we give the same attention to all of our clients, but charge each according to his means. If our clients are rich, we charge them regular level rates. Of course, that is why we can ask lower fees from the poor. This policy drew the downtrodden and the desperate to her. He's like the equalizer of the 19th century. Oh my gosh. Like the more <laughs> I read about her, the more I was just like, this woman is amazing. And... The people who come to her, they tend to go to her when they realize the police are just not going to help or not able to help or not interested. Like, you pick. During the first years of her law firm, she sees several clients who are researching friends and relatives who've gone to the South for work opportunities and then vanished. Okay. And rather than her hiring an investigator, she decides to look into it herself. Because if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. Exactly. And after her initial inquiry, she discovers a network of New York City recruitment agents who lured laborers to the South where they ensnared their workers in a system called peonage. Hmm. Are you familiar? I'm going to assume this is some type of like, uh, I want like indentured servitude. Yes. Yes. Um, although it was most like peonage tends to like, Peonage in the U.S. tended to be more rampant in the turpentine camps. Okay. Quackenbos discovers that it was a fairly common practice in a variety of industries, and she decides to travel alone, and she begins this clandestine ex ex examination. She's donning disguises, and she's stowing away on supply wagons to infiltrate these, these camps. She ends up posing often as an old woman selling scissors and a sure. magazine writer. And it's so bizarre to me. Like, these are just the most like, okay, th this is so non sequitur. They're not going to, they'll never suspect the scissor seller. She would have gotten away with it too, if it weren't for you muggling kids. <laughs> <laughs> when she returns from her first trip, she ends up coming back home with a fever and 46 affidavits against the perpetrators of the peonage system. Yeah. So she just like is I like you had to add that she had a fever like oh sicker than a dog but didn't come home and rest first like she like just in a fever dream completed I love it okay so this catches the attention of the Department of Justice and they open an investigation at which point assistant attorney general or assistant attorney general Charles Wells Russell personally travels to the south to conduct an inquiry the Justice Department is so impressed with Quackenbow's work that they appoint her as a special assistant United States attorney for the South District of New York. She was Get the it? first woman to have this job, and this was 13 years before women gained the right to vote. It's so cool. Her responsibilities are centered around identifying and prosecuting peonage schemes and 
in the industry trust. Her responsibilities center around identifying and prosecuting peonage schemes and industry trust busting. Sorry, every time you say peonage. <laughs> sorry. I'm glad you're 12. You know, and it's like. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> I, I made the, the comment yesterday to Hubs that, you know, he acts his shoe size. Yes, I'm four and a half. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, although, okay, Hub's like, he's like, yeah, you know, I told you I'd never mature past, you know, 10. And then I made a joke and I was like, but yeah, there was that two year period where you decided to wear shoes that were size 10. Like he was gifted a box of shoes that were size 10 from a friend who, you know, <laughs> just like loves to be in the latest fashion. And he decided to Cinderella his foot into those shoes <laughs> for two years and wear them nonstop. And so when he started to develop feet pain, this was right at the height of COVID, he had convinced himself that apparently he'd gotten COVID and not known it. And as a result had developed what he called his COVID toe. Oh my God. I love him. And then like later on, it was like, he went to a doctor and they said, no good, sir. That is a bunion. <laughs> Like you, you've literally just forced your feet and shoes too small. Like you are a fashionista. Maybe you should be kinder to yourself and wear this brace and wear shoes that fit. Suddenly, I love just the image I have of Mike sitting there <laughs> on the doctor's table being told, nope, that, that's a bunion. <laughs> yeah. Nope. You're, you, these shoes are two sizes too small. You are like the Grinch in the Grinch's heart. <laughs> i love him Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) okay so that was a weird side note anyhow the peonage probes they take quackenbos abroad as well like because again she's got all the money in the free world she can travel anywhere so she travels through europe and parts of the middle east pursuing these leads to build her case and that's when she unearths an extensive ring of exploitation all throughout all of these countries that are enticing individuals to immigrate to the u.s where they're going to be trapped in peonage Got it. You know, because okay. it's a bunch of people trying to perpetuate slavery. Right. Mm-hmm. In some fashion or another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. I, I love humanity. Mm-hmm. And then in another instance, Baron Edmondo de Planches, I have butchered that. The Italian ambassador of, to the U.S., he asks her to look into the treatment of Italians working on a cotton, a cotton plant a cotton plantation in Mississippi and Quackenbos targets Sunnyside plantation. That's owned by a dude. Who's got the creepiest name. OB Crittenden for this investigation. I mean, it's just designed (laughs) to, you know, raise the hairs on the back of your neck. And she dispatches an undercover investigator to sneak onto the plantation at night. She spends her time when she visits in the shacks of the immigrants and drinks the polluted water that they're drinking as she's gathering evidence. So as all of this is happening, with proper motivation, the threat of prison, one of the labor agents divulges that the company has tons of dubious labor practices because it's it's involved to be like, okay, you're taking kind of the idea of like a sharecropper where it's like you work this land and, the, and if this land's profitable, then you get that money. The problem right. is we're going to charge you for every little thing and you will never be out of debt. Right. And we're going to own you for the rest of forever. Right. And so as she's like touring the land, like she ends up 
you know, this guy Percy is giving her, and you're going to hear about Leroy Percy because he is just gross. He's talking about all, like how profitable the, co- the company is, how everybody underneath him is doing so well. And when he's walking with her and he's giving her the tour, everybody's happy and smiling and there's children running free and everything like that. But he won't let her stay the night there. And it's a two hour journey to where he forces her to sleep. And then it's two hours to get back in the morning. So he's got tons of time to set everything up and get everybody, all the paid actors in place. Right. So when she finally sneaks onto there and starts like meeting the real people who do live there, the real people who are suffering, she gets a very different story. As you would. Right. So it ends up being just awful. And at one point, Leroy Percy is the one who's you know really implicated in all of this. He is a cotton planner, a lawyer, and he's a local political leader. And he fancies himself untouchable. He ends up, as she's building this case against him, raiding her hotel room or having somebody raid her hotel room. And he uncovers all of her affidavits and she, he steals all of them. She comes back, sees her room as tossed, you do. and all of her information's missing. And she's like, hmm. oh, crap, what am I going to do? Please and then, tell me she had copies. No, there were no oh, copies. Man. Later on, um, that's when the information's returned to her as by a, a different political figure. And it was just like, I found these from a dubious character. And <laughs> I am taking the time to return them to you. And Please she reward me for my kindness. Right. And she knows that it was all, you know, a a big ruse just to make sure that Percy knew exactly the information that he had or that she had on him and that she couldn't go to the police, even though she knew exactly what happened. Right. Okay. So it's, it's gross. Percy also appeals to his good friend, president Theodore Roosevelt for relief as she's persecuting him. Of course. And she gets removed from the investigation at Sunnyside and the press has already gotten a hold of the story and her report ends up getting published. And that's when the Italian government starts warning its citizens against moving to the Delta region. And this okay. causes some negative impact on people immigrating to the South because apparently they don't want to be stuck in slavery. What? I know. That's weird. And uh, Percy continues to run a smear campaign against Quackenbo, um, disparaging her basically just on the virtue of her character and gender. Well, not character, but gender. As you do. Right. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. it's at this point, like in the book, that there is an excerpt that was written about her in a newspaper that was basically said that she wasn't supposed to outshine men. She, her job as a woman is supposed basically to stay pregnant in the kitchen. But they, they did it in a poem form where it rhymes. So, you know, it's classy. Oh, okay. Well, that's Yeah, cool. it's classy. And it's just, it's, she's basically, so it's, it's, this isn't the only time that she's denigrated for being a woman, but the good news is that she benefited, you know, as we've said a couple of times from the security of having her own money, her education, her employment. And this is really uncommon considering it's 1917, not even 1917, it's like 1915 or so. Um, uh, Another thing that she did is she ends up suing an insurance company on behalf of a group of widows who were owned benefits. 
And they're afraid to call out the corruption in her profession. And Quackenbos, she gets an attorney, an immigration lawyer disbarged because there's a lot of things that are happening. Like if you're fighting a deportation charge at the time, you're only allowed to legally charge your client $10 for filing that appeal and then to send that appeal to DC. There's a dude named Cesar Barra who charges many times over the amount. Some clients were charged over a hundred and Quackenbos, like not only does he take this money, he also doesn't guarantee that it'll win or guarantee that it'll pay it back. And so, yeah, he could just be a jerk face, lose the whole thing. Yeah. And then you're stuck out of money. So she learns about this and she takes the case and Barra dares her to quote, quack, crack the whip. And so she does. And she ends up recouping all of the money that he had taken from all of his clients and successfully gets his license revoked. Good for her. So she just doesn't mess around. She's the definition of F around and find out. Oh my gosh. And then it ends up getting worse when the case that really makes her famous is this girl named Ruth Kruger who goes missing in New York. And this is 1916 at this point. This girl, she is this 18 year old girl. She is and she's part of an immigrant family that's that's well to do. They they have a quite a bit of money and they live in a you know a nice apartment and she goes to get her sharp her skates, her ice skates sharpened and she never comes home. And her family like starts looking for her, and they like her sister thinks, "Well, maybe maybe she went ice skating, right? Because she did get her ice skates sharpened and she's not at the ice rink." And so maybe I'll ask the guy who sharpened the skates. She goes down. Apparently you get your ice skate sharpened at a motorcycle shop because everybody had different ways to make side hustles. And there's not like a dedicated ice skate sharpener (laughs) shop. I mean, I guess that checks. (laughs) Yeah. And he admits that he saw a very handsome girl or attractive girl and that she did pick up skates, but that was the last time she saw her. But the first time she goes to that motorcycle shop, the shop's closed. And it's normal business hours and he's not there. But when she finally sees him, he's like, oh, yeah, I think I saw her, but, you know, whatever. And the police, they start an investigation, but it ends up kind of being half-assed. And it's just gross because the father is just trying everything he can to get her information out there and get all of this happening But the police are saying things like, well, maybe she ran away with a boyfriend or eloped or, you know, women just any number of things. Yeah. Like she's probably in a house for wayward women giving birth right now. Like all of the things, all of the things. And so Kruger ends up getting frustrated by the inertia or the, the, the in inertia of NYPD's investigation. And the case goes cold and he ends up hiring this Grace Humiston to take the case over. At this point, she's remarried. And we know, as some time. <laughs> I don't know. I I really don't know. And I because she's not at home making pot roast. Like in the Kruger case, she's working upwards to 18 hours a day. That's like at what point do you even meet someone? Like yeah, you tell me. I don't know. Um, oh, it was probably her DoorDasher. <laughs> I bet you. 
I mean, <laughs> you would think, right? Um, so the 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 dad Kruger ends up reaching out to to Grace Quackenbos or Humiston now, and at this point, the newspapers are saying that she she that Ruth Kruger, the the person, um, was likely a victim of white slavery. Is that a phrase you've heard of? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and so they're saying that, you know, she's an attractive teenager, that if she didn't run away, she's basically in sex trafficking. And that's just, it is what it is. Sucks to be her. And we're so upset with all of these immigrant men coming in and stealing our beautiful white women. That checks. Yeah. And so Humiston, she decides this is it. She's takes this case. She ends up publicly accusing the police of a lot of negligence. And she starts really diving in and looking into this case. She ends up hiring a Hungarian investigator who is amazing and such a, a character unto himself, whose last name is Kron. And um, to get in and to really investigate the Ruth Kruger murder, because she really believes that the guy who owns the motorcycle shop, Alfred uh, Kochi, is the one who likely he's the last one to see her so they really need to investigate that and of course Kochi like disappears he immediately absconds to Italy leaving of his course. wife and children and and he's the motion the ice skating repairman exactly okay. and the woman who runs his wife who ends up taking over the shop he she ends up stop letting people investigate and she's like I'm done like just you've chased him away I'm here being a single mom now because of you just leave my poor Al alone and so to get into the shop, Grace ends up having her friend Kron come in and apply to be the motorcycle repairman. But he has never seen a motorcycle in his life. <laughs> he does not have a clue. So he goes in and he spends his days like moving the different parts of the motorcycle around. Like it's a very simple motorcycle at this time. They're not you know, like the high end right. BMWs that we have today or Ducatis or whatever. Um, and then at night he goes home and reads the manuals on how to actually do the repairs. That's so cool. And so he starts doing all of these repairs. And at one point he needs to, uh, file something down. Like, I think it's a spoke or something. And he knows that Mrs. Kochi won't let him into the cellar, into the basement where he really wants to explore because he feels like that's where all the clues are pointing. Uh, and he's like, well, I, I know that I need to get this file down and I, I, I can't use the tools that you have. So I'm going to go to the blacksmith shop. And Mrs. Kochi at this point is like, you know what, fine, just go down to the basement, just use the tool. So he goes down to the basement and because he's a trained, federally trained investigator, he goes down there and he is looking all around. He's looking for things like fresh nails. Because if it's a bright, shiny nail, he knows that that's a new addition that's been put up. He right. doesn't see anything. It's impeccably clean. There's a really large workbench, but not a whole lot else. And while he's down there, he realizes he's, he's down there too long and he hits that pit in his stomach and he goes, oh no, I've now been made. And he hears Mrs. Kochi upstairs screaming. I know you've been found out. Like, I know who you are. You're the reason you're, you've chased my husband away. Like you were one of them. Right, right, right. And he comes upstairs and he calls out the low point in his career, knowing that he let Mrs. Humiston down. Oh, but at that, at that point he goes, he goes, he, he knows it's the basement. He can't prove it, but he knows that what they're looking for is in the basement. 
So they spend a ton of time really trying to get into that basement and they end up doing things like petitioning the city to dig up the sidewalk and to dig up the coal chute next to the like everything immediately within an inch to get down there and to see if they can find stuff and they, they can't find anything. So as all of this is going on, um, at one point, like they hit this wall and they realize that they're out of things and Kron is like, I can't do anymore. This is it. This is the end of the investigation. Like I can't get into the cellar that I need to. And Grace walks up with the deed to the motorcycle shop in her hand. Cause sister bought it. Sister bought it. Um, <laughs> and she had spent so much time going through third parties to make sure the sale went without people knowing it was her mm-hmm. that, um, by the time, like, and so she's running two investigations. She's like, okay, I'm going to have Kron do his thing. And while he's digging up everything that he possibly can, and I'm fighting all these court cases, I'm also going to try to be buying the party or buying the property through a third party. And it is incredible that she's able to pull that off. Well, they get down there into the, the uh, basement and it takes, a, you know, some strong people to move this workbench and underneath it, they find a, a door oh. that's just been laid flat against the ground they pull it up and Mm. there's there's the body why keep it where where is he gonna put it right i mean i guess yeah so they find they find the decomposed body of ruth krueger it had been in the basement the entire time the police who had searched that place had never moved the workbench i mean yeah okay um, and then during the investigation, it comes out that the motorcycle division had given a, a Mrs. Koki and Alfred Koki these cards that basically said, like, if he was caught doing something speeding or whatever, they were to give these cards to the police officer. And it said, like, be kind to him. He's one of us or not one of us, but treat him get, well. Get out of jail free card. Exactly. Motorcycle division, like 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 a motorcycle club, or no, the motorcycle cops. Okay, okay, okay. And they ended up in the investigation after this when, like, when Grace Humiston comes to the the media and was just like, "Look, I had all of the clues that they did, but I found her, and they they couldn't." And so then, the police chief and the mayor they do this full on investigation, and it comes to find out that the motorcycle cops were running this scam where they would pull somebody over, they would give them a a ticket and they would say like, gosh, if you wanted to get this fixed, you could really go talk to our man, Alfred Kochi at the motorcycle shop and he'll, he'll deal with it. And so they would go to Alfred Kochi and allow him to repair their bike or whatever for, you know, a fee that was kicked back to the police and the police would erase all of their information on the ticket and then reissue the same ticket. Hmm, Okay. Like just over and over again, over and over again. And so because this was just a a money laundering scheme, truly, well, not laundering, but you know, extortion scheme. um, They had this, this symbiotic relationship where everybody, you know, fed off of everybody else. Okay. And so that's why they protected Kochi. So when the investigations were going on, the police were like, oh, he's fine. He's a good old man. He don't worry about him. Ugh, I want. Mm. Mm-hmm. 
Now, the good news about this is that Kochi is um, found in Bologna in Italy, and he is arrested and he's held in this dungeon of a cell. And he is tried in Italy for the death of Ruth Kruger, and he is found guilty. And his testimony of the case is hair raising because he just recounts and, and he's got several different accounts of, of how he did it, why he did it. And you get a different version depending on what frame of mind he's in and how truthful he wants to be, but it's, it's not okay. It is, it is so disturbing. Um, but back to, to Humiston after the Kruger case in July of 1917, she's named a special investigator to the New York city police department, despite the fact that she has put so much egg on their face and made them look so <laughs> bad in the papers, they are left with no choice but to hire her. So she's that clearly they... better than them. Yes. <laughs> um, and they're trying to really help their own integrity in the, in the public, in the public eye. Um, she does this for no budget, which is nuts because she's like, look, I'm just going to do this. And my main goal is to trace all of these missing girls. And her main goal was uncovering evidence of, you know, white slavery traffic. And that ends up really being her undoing because she kept believing that there was this huge white slaver ring. And okay. it ends up that, you know, there was a lot of really awful things happening, but it wasn't orchestrated by some big master plan. And she just, so, yeah. Okay, got it. And so she really gets hung up on that. And that ends up becoming her undoing, um, which is kind of a bummer. But she does a lot of really good things. Um, she ends up trying to start this morality league of America, where she's trying to create these places for girls to, you know, live and act and be in, the, be in community with others and not be subject to all of these base things. Um she ends up trying to help hundreds of families who are trying to find their missing daughters and sisters. And one line that really bummed me out was the Kruger murder brought Grace Humiston into the national renown, but she, along with other scores of other prominent progressive era reformers were eventually lost to history. Later newspaper recollections of the Kruger case failed to miss it, mention Mrs. Sherlock Holmes at all. That's devastating. Yeah, considering that she is the attorney turned investigator who broke the whole thing open. She dies in 1948 at the age of 77. And she's memorialized as being twice married, first to Major Henry Forrest Quackenbos and then Daniel Hepps, and then Howard Donald Humiston. She dedicated her life to fight for justice. Mrs. Sherlock Holmes left a notable legacy as the groundbreaking female lawyer and impactful social reformer. I love her. Mm -hmm. What a legend. Like, how BA do you have to be to just, you know what, I know the clue is here. I'm just going to buy the house. Like, Yeah. <laughs> well, and she's noted, like, when she's called Mrs. Sherlock Holmes, she's like, look, I really don't like that because he uses deduction. I don't believe in deduction. I believe in just pursuing the case in front of you. It's just common sense. That's what you're working with. Oh, she's impressive. I got to say. Yeah. You don't need a Dr. Watson. You just need common sense. 
I'm like, I need a Dr. Watts. <laughs> I need a stream of medical professionals when I'm honest. <laughs> like, we're being honest here. Yeah, like, I, I'm, <laughs> I need and have an entire medical team of people being like, no, 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 no. Sit down. Sit. Have you tried water? <laughs> you should try water. We had a nap today. Vitamin D? You eaten? Oh. <laughs> they get you every time. I know. Like, I'm really just a plant. Here we are. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what a legend. I am going to have to do some reading on her. What, like, what a badass. I'm so excited. So, yes, I really recommend Brad Rika, Mrs. Sherlock Holmes. Great book. Okay. Uh, the audiobook is pretty good. Um, it is interesting because, like, the the killer's name, Alfred Kochi, Co is spelt Kochi, but the audio the audio speaker, presenter, the reader, the narrator, um, he says Koki as he's using it. And so it's been a lot of mental work on my end to say Kochi because it's C-O-C-C-H-I. Kochi. Hmm, okay. And like, I even re-listened to the podcast where the author talked about the story and he referred to the perpetrator as Kochi. Okay. And so I'm I'm going with Kochi. But it's very <laughs> hard when you listen to 12 hours of Koki, 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 Koki. Right, right. Yeah. Oh gosh. I'm gonna tell you, um, I try this is totally on on track with that. I tried to make I tried to make a TikTok the other day. And I couldn't do it because I couldn't say the name of the individual without sounding so fake so now now that i can say it i periodically through my house just announce exclusious like <laughs> out, of, out of the blue because it's just what pops in my mind and i can say it but when i was trying to make the tiktok it was not happening without me sounding like the world's fakest human being on the planet you know, I love the TikToks where you get the person who starts trying to be like Mr. Dan rather and to do the whole thing and then like has the breakdown when they're trying to say the word they include and they include the outtakes. Oh, so yeah. it's like today on the news, we have what? The, what that, yeah, I mean, like, I never made it through like the first sentence. I tried like six times and then finally I was like, I can't, I can't do this today. <laughs> So I told happen. Ian, I was like, I need you to just hold my phone and record me so I can sound like I'm talking to, like, I, I'm talking to you, so I'm going to be real about it and not just sound like this. <laughs> oh my Inclusion. God. Right. <laughs> He's like, oh my God, babe, you're fine. <laughs> so I'll try again later. You know, we are <laughs> our hardest critics. In fact, yes, you're absolutely right about that. There is a line from nf in a, in a song that he has he said i'm my own worst critics so critics step your hate game up yeah man come on get it together i can i like, can out critic you any day right like that's <laughs> all you got like harder take your best shot like i'm i'm done with this like just trust me i've already won <laughs> like i've already kicked my own ass in this one kicking my own ass <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness I'm so excited. I love her. Mm -hmm. I cannot wait. To, I'm, I'm trying to remember her full name, like commit it to memory. 
Grace. Grace. Well, so her first name is Mary, but she goes by Grace. So Grace Quackenbose Hummiston. Hummiston. I just wanted to stop at hummus. Like, obviously, I'm thinking about food now. You know, (laughs) and I think if you search Mrs. Sherlock Holmes, you could find her. Oh, okay. Because I've looked for her enough. Now my computer goes, oh, yeah, we, we know who you mean. I'm like, we got this. Um, we got it. <laughs> but at first it was like, do you mean the landlord who oversaw Baker Street? It's not Mrs. Sherlock Holmes. No. And I'm like, no, that's not it. But... Get it together, Google. Right. <laughs> Google, you're drunk. Go home. <laughs> Where's Bing? Yeah. I need DuckDuckGo. <laughs> that's awesome oh my goodness so i think my story ended up taking quite a bit so how about we call that one and okay. then we come back for yours so if you've enjoyed this and you're thinking oh my goodness i can't wait to hear what angie has to say if it's going to be on the same line or you know uh, adjacent to or as fun and entertaining and what the hell did i just hear um then, you know, rate, review, subscribe to this podcast and uh, reach out to us because we actually have this email address where we allow you to to send us your thoughts. And maybe it should be Koki and not Kochi. And I am completely, you know, misguided in how I should say that. And you can tell me this. You can tell me what you were screaming at your, your computer or your phone or the stereo this entire time. And you can do so at uh, unhinged.historypod at gmail.com and uh, we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Bye.